I wondered why I woke up this morning and had tire marks on my back and I realized my wife was continually throwing me under the bus. Uh, I did marry her when she was 17. I look back now and I'm like, thank God, because if she would have known better. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But if we can make it out, I think anybody can make it. So <laughs> he giving me that look. All right. Well, it's, uh, it's great to be here tonight. I'm not going to throw her under the bus. And uh, but it's such an honor to be in this great house and how much I love your pastors. Uh, I love them. You can tell a lot about um, a leader by their family. And uh, John and Danielle, their kids are amazing kids. What a beautiful family. You can tell a lot of, about a leader by their team. What a phenomenal team they have. Would you say one of the best teams around? Easily, easily. And, uh, and then just, uh, just so generous and so hospitable. And we've just had such a great time and feel so blessed and so loved. We love being back here. I know it's meant to be winter. I'm wearing short sleeves in winter on the Sunshine Coast. And uh, it's fantastic. I, I buy my surfboards, believe it or not, from here because they're about half the price of what they are in America. So thank you, Jesus. So I'm believing that tomorrow I don't have to pay the $200 that United always try and get me to pay to bring a surfboard back to America. Amen. But who enjoyed Leanne? Was she good at the women's conference? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hopefully she didn't diminish your affection towards me tonight, but uh, <laughs> I just made a lot of mistakes. I, I learned the hard way. But I want you to come with me in your Bibles to the book of uh, Joshua, Joshua chapter 2. I want to preach just for a few moments tonight and, uh, and then kind of throw out a net. Uh, when when uh, Pastor John was asking whether I could do this Sunday night, I, I felt immediately, before I even said yes, I felt that this was uh, the word for tonight. And uh, just listening to Pastor John talking a little bit before about some of the confusion around God. A lot of people see that God is a, you know, uh, an angry God or a, a judgment God and, you know, sinners in the hands of God. And, and then the problem with us human beings is we pendulum swing. We pendulum swing. So we go from God is the God of judgment to, you know, he's the God of, you know, fluffy rainbows and unicorns and candy canes and, you know, Fairy floss, I think we say over here, you know, and, and, and so, you know, and so we, we kind of pendulum swing from one to the other. There's a reason that the second commandment, I'm not sure if you know the second commandment, but the second commandment is thou shalt not make any graven image, kind of redesign or refashion God in the way that you think he ought to be shaped. But we do it as, it's, it's the second commandment because we do that habitually we do that all the time we don't even realize we do it christians do it all the time well i don't like this part of god so i'm going to omit that from my theology unfortunately god's like no 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 i need you to to kind of just worship me as i am and then you'll begin to discover so the title of my message tonight is the scarlet cord and it'll make sense in a moment so come with me joshua chapter two how many people brought their bible to church if you don't have a bible find a christian sit next to them Ask if they'll let you read along with them. Joshua chapter 2. It's a good thing to bring your Bible to church. It says, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove. Sounds like a lovely place, doesn't it? Where do you live? I live in Acacia Grove. 
Yeah, we tried to get in there, but it was too expensive. Okay. Acacia Grove despised secretly, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and they came to the house of a harlot named Rahab, and they lodged there. Interesting. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, behold. <laughs> uh, anyway, I could, but I won't. I'm going to use restraint right now. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, yes, the men came to me, but I don't know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men slipped out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who had pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. For when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I've shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. Spare my father, my mother, and my brother, and my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her and said, Our lives for yours, if none of you tell this if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. I want you to kind of underline that or underscore that in your scripture. The location of her house was on the city wall. Her house was on the city wall, and she dwelt on the wall. So when the Bible repeats something, it's, it's doing it for a reason. Her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, get out to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. So the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. And we shall be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, it will be free from this oath which you have made us swear. And then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed. And she bound the scarlet cord in the window. And there was a lot of reading right there. But I, I love this story. And for those of you that know Joshua chapter 6, four chapters later, the Bible says that Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in. 
And so Joshua is looking at, at Jericho, which for the last 40 years had been fortifying itself because they'd heard how God, the God of the Israelites, had not only brought judgments on Egypt, not only the 10 plagues, but also completely uh, disempowered Egypt from being the, the, the superpower of the earth by completely drowning the entire Egyptian army because they dared to strike the Lord's anointed. They dared to pursue the Lord's anointed. They went from a superpower to the most vulnerable, crippled nation overnight because they tried to strike the Lord's anointed. And so they heard about this God who opens the sea. And so they felt that perhaps human technology, they felt that perhaps human engineering, human architecture, human skill that, that uh, they could fortify with cement and concrete and steel and reinforcements, that they could build walls that could somehow uh, cause God to have to go around them. And so we know the story in Joshua, Joshua chapter six, God says, see, I've given Jericho into your hand, march around it, you know, six times, once a day for six days. And on the seventh day, do it seven times. And it'll come to pass on the seventh time. I want you to shout with a great shout and the walls of the city shall fall down. Now we know from this story that her house is in the wall. Her house is not in the city. Her house is in the wall where judgment's about to come. So I want to give you four quick thoughts tonight. The first one is what I call the tension. The tension. Every good uh, movie has what I call tension. Every marriage has tension. Opposites attract and then opposites attack. But But you will find that that when you get married, very quickly your, your partner will begin to, over the years, you will begin to become opposites. You begin to be, one's a morning person, the other one's a night person. One loves indoors, the other one, it, it's, it's one spontaneous, the other one's calculated and organized and steward. And, and it's like, oh my gosh, and we're always, this, this, it's actually God, it's actually God, it's actually the Spirit of God, the breath of God on your marriage, because it's tension that causes a wire to be strong so that a tightrope walker can walk across it. Without tension, he'd flop. It's tension that keeps the rope strong so that a tent can endure a strong wind. Tension is actually not a weakness. Tension is actually strength. God lives in the tension. And what I mean by that is God is, God is not one or the other. God is not judgment or grace. God is both judgment and grace. The Bible says that righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne, that mercy and truth go before him. God, God is mercy, but he is also truth. There's a lot of people, they just want God to be truth. And so they go out on the street and they yell at people, you're all going to burn in hell. And I think, you know, they wonder why no one's getting converted. Well, it was just truth without any mercy. The Bible says it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. But then if you only have mercy, Without truth, well, mercy ends up just being washed away because mercy has its power because of truth. You know, if I got pulled over, you know, by a policeman who says, I'm going to write you a ticket, and I'm like, why? I was, wasn't even doing the speed limit. I was going under the speed limit. Well, we don't really have speed limits, but I'm going to let you off. I'm just like, well, you can't let me off. But if I was doing double the speed limit, if I was doing 180 kilometers an hour, and he said, you are speeding, you should go to jail, but I'm going to let you off. How many people know that's mercy? Because the truth is, I was you, you can't have, mercy is at its power, grace is at its power in the presence of truth. 
And so, so what I like about what I like about God is that 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 God lives in the tension where He He is both at the same time. Psychologists tell us that you and I, as human beings, are only capable of one dominant emotion at a particular time. If if we're angry, we make poor choices. When we're emotional, we don't we don't make rational or logical choices because as human beings, we're only good. We can only we're only capable of one dominant emotion at a particular time. God is not like that. God is not like that. God can bring judgment and yet bring salvation in the midst of judgment. God God can bring destruction and yet in the midst of destruction bring redemption. That the God's anger can be released, but at the same time, his love and mercy can flow simultaneously because God is not like you and I. And so what human beings do, we try to recreate God in, in, in a way that, that is befitting with our mind. But as soon as you capture God with your mind, you've actually missed God. You, your mind in a million years is still going to be blown away by the magnificence and the splendor of Almighty God. And we see this with Noah. Noah, in the midst of judgment, there's salvation for Noah. We see it with Lot. In the midst of destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, there's salvation. Jesus on the cross is a picture of God's judgment, but also God's salvation all wrapped into one. So we see God's mercy. We see God's love. At the same time, God's, God's wrath and God's judgment. So the first, first thing is, is the tension. Uh, there is a tension even in God. We see that God is both the lion and the lamb. Which one is he? Is he the lion of the tribe of Judah or is he the lamb slain from the foundership? Well, he's both. Well, how do I know which one I meet when I get to heaven? Well, which one did you embrace here on earth? If you receive the lamb here on earth, you're going to look forward to meeting the lamb. But if you rejected the lamb, it's the lion that awaits you. That's why it's important to the lamb. The, the second thought that I want to share with you is what I call the truth. The truth in this story, here's this woman, her name is Rahab. And the Bible, the Bible continually, even, even in Joshua chapter 6, and we don't have time tonight to go there, but it keeps calling her Rahab the harlot. And I'm reading that going, come on, God, just can't you? Rahab the harlot. Rahab, it's like Rahab the hooker. Rahab the prostitute. It's like, oh, come on. But it's, that's her profession. That's what she does. She takes advantage of vulnerable men. She, 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 she takes men and profits off their vulnerabilities and their weaknesses. She, she, she destroys covenants. This, this woman does not deserve salvation. This, this woman, there's nothing righteous about this woman. This woman is not going to be saved because she's the founder of Habitats for Humanity. She's, she's not going to be saved because she invented the polio vaccine. She, she's not going to be saved because she built the center for children who want to read good and do other things good too. Like this... This woman is, 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 is a prostitute. She's Rahab the harlot. She, her profession is, is broken, is a mess. And yet, when these men come, two men come into her home, she hides them. 
there's something very significant about the number two. Number two in, in the Bible is very, very important. Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. Uh, two is the first number by which things can be multiplied. Uh, God is a multiplication God. And two is also the number of agreement. In the place of agreement, there's a, that's where power flows. I need you to understand that, that God's, God's word is, is, is in a place of agreement. So the two actually represent God's word, and I'll tell you why. Because... Uh, God's will and God's word are in, in alignment. God never wills something he doesn't speak, and God never speaks something he doesn't will. If you know, want to know the will of God, it's very simple. It's in the word of God. What God says, he wills, and what God wills, he says. A lot of people live with the delusion that whatever God wills will happen automatically. It's a perversion of the sovereignty of God doctrine. How many people know the, the introduction of Scripture, the stanza of the introduction of who God is, kind of shoots that, that uh, poor theology down? Because how many people know it was God's will for there to be light? Okay, just a few of you. It was God's will for there to be light. Okay, it was God's will for there to be light. God's will was for, the, for, for there to be light. But the light did not come till God spoke. So God in his heart wanted light. God willed there to be light, but God had to release his word. So his will was for there to be light, but the light did not come till God said, and the Lord said, Genesis 1, 3, let there be light, then light was. God, God releases his word, and when the word and his word, they come into alignment. So here the two come in, it's an alignment. It's the, she receives the word and she hides them. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So she, she hides the word, but it's interesting when she receives the word. Now remember, she's a hooker. She's a prostitute. She's a broken woman. She's an immoral woman. This is not a moral person. But she receives the word and faith comes. How do we know faith comes? Because she begins to declare, I know that your God has given you all of this land. We heard what he did when he dried up the Red Sea. Faith has an ask attached to it. She then begins to ask them, saying, listen, when your God delivers this land into your hand, will you spare my father's house? She's not even asking for herself. She's not even believing just for herself. She's saying, I don't want to just be saved. I want me to be saved. I want my papa to be saved. I want my mama to be saved. I want my brothers to be saved. I want my sister to be saved. This, this is a powerful story because here is a woman named Rahab whose occupation just immediately eliminates her in most religious circles from someone that we would think that God would bother with, that God would save. But the truth is, you and I are Rahab. You and I are Rahab. If you think that somehow you're righteous and somehow that because you don't do this and you don't do that, that somehow you qualify for God's salvation, you have missed it. We are all Rahab. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one. But what's amazing about this story, out of all the people, here is a woman who is an immoral woman. She's a broken woman. And the word of the Lord comes to her and she responds. 
responds to the word of God. This gives me such encouragement and such hope, which tells me that when the word of, the word of God can come to anybody, the word can come to the most broken, the most downtrodden, the most evil, the most far gone, the most devastated. The, the word of God can come to any person and all they got to do is begin to exercise faith. It doesn't say that she's changing her occupation, but she begins to ask in faith. So we see the tension, we see the truth. From there, what I, what I honestly believe that happens next is, is what I call the test. The test is what you and I do with the Word of God. So in the beginning, God said, let there be light, and light was. The next verse says, and God saw the light and called the light good. He never called the darkness good. He called the light good. There was light because the word left his mouth and created light. Where the word is, there is light. In the absence of the word, there's no light. There's only darkness. You can't see the world through darkness. Your, your eye and my eye requires light to see. Light has to pass through the retina for your eye to be able to see. We, we live in a world right now where our education system has removed the word of God and they're trying to tell and explain to a, an emerging generation morality, sexuality, gender, and yet they have removed the light. They have removed the word of God. And so it's one person in the dark trying to tell another person in the dark what is actual. But you and I have the word of God. And it's only that God called the word, God called the light good. The Bible teaches us that God has separated the world into two camps, sons of darkness and sons of light. How do you know which camp I'm in? It's very simple. What did you do with the word of God? If you reject the word of God, you're in the dark. But if you receive the word of God, the Bible says it's in thy word, in, in thy light we see light. Thy word, Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. When you embrace the word of God, you'll begin to see clearly. You'll begin, you'll begin to see not only your own life, you begin to see your future clearly. You begin to see all that God has for you. We need the word of God. Somebody say amen. So she receives the word of God. But as she receives the word of God, what's amazing is that she has an ask, and she asks for her mama, her papa, her brothers and sisters to be saved. Now, that, that kind of throws my theology in a little bit of a tailspin because I'm kind of thinking, if she's got a mom and dad that she obviously loves, how could mom and dad let her choose this profession? How could a mom and dad be okay with their daughter Rahab being a prostitute? And then I began to realize this is Jericho. This is a place where as soon as the word enters, the king of that region immediately wants to get rid of the word because he's threatened by the word because the word will take away his sovereignty and his power. The king of Jericho is, is, like, a, is like the devil. The devil doesn't want the word of God going forth. He doesn't want the word of God in our schools. He doesn't want the word of God in our government. He doesn't want the word of God in our education system. He doesn't want the word of God in poly. He doesn't want the word of God in our high schools. He doesn't want the word of God in our universities. He doesn't want the word of God there because the word of God will immediately take from him and, and bring in God's authority because where God's word is, God watches over his word to perform it. God's word never returns to him empty, but always accomplishes that for which it is sent forth. So the devil is terrified of the word of God. 
God. He hates the word of God. And so, 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 so the king wants to eliminate, he wants to get rid of the word, but she hides the word. As she hides the word, faith goes. She has an ask to the word of God, but she asks for her parents. And I'm just kind of thinking, you know, I've got a daughter, little Zoe. And when Zoe was little, she used to love putting on her, her princess dresses. And she had all of them. She had every, she had the little mermaid. She had Cinderella. She had, you know, Elsa. I mean, she, she just loved Frozen. She, I mean, and we would do, we would do all, we would do all of them. We, we, we'd put one Disney after another, after another, after another. And, you know, I'd dance with her and I can show you the world. Shining, shimmering splendor. Tell me, princess, now when did you let, let your heart dis, and I'd sing and she, a whole new, and I'd sing with her, and she'd love it. And she, she thought, because she's watching Cinderella with me, she thought that this was how people got married. And so she, I'd put her down, and she'd go, Daddy, marry me again. <laughs> and it was the most beautiful thing. And I want my daughter to marry a prince. And, and her dream as a little kid, and I'm trying to think, at one, at one stage, Rahab was a little girl. At some point, Rahab was somebody's little Zoe. Surely the papa, when he looked at her, thought one day you're going to marry a prince. But, but life, life in Jericho, life where the word of God is rejected, takes a dark and sinister course. And now life is twisted. And I'm sure mom and dad have got their own issues and brothers and sisters have got their own issues. And she finds herself living in this lifestyle. But she receives the word of God in the midst of this brokenness. But then comes what I call the final one, number four, is what I call the triumph. The triumph happens because the Bible says that when the walls of Jericho fell down, when the judgment came on the walls of Jericho, when they shouted and the priests blew the ram's horn and the walls of Jericho came down, the Bible says that Joshua now turned to these two spies and he says, now go and enter the house of Rahab the harlot and bring out all who were in her house. And the Bible says they went in and they brought Rahab and her household out of the house that somehow supernaturally was still intact. The only difference between her house, which was like an apartment on the wall, was that her house had a scarlet cord had a scarlet cord hanging in the window. So in the midst of judgment, there was something that caught the eye of God that God had to make the judgment go around but could not come on to, to the scarlet cord. Scarlet in the scripture is very interesting. Scarlet speaks of three things. It speaks of suffering, it speaks of sacrifice, and it speaks of blood. This is literally, this is literally a shadow or a foretype of Jesus Christ who would be our suffering sacrifice, who would shed his blood on the cross. We know from the Passover that what, what, what the blood covers, judgment must pass over. What the blood covers, the destroyer must pass over. Because she had the scarlet cord, because she had suffering sacrifice, because of that, the judgment must pass over. The only way I can describe it to you is uh, my sin, because of my sin. My, because of my sin on the day of judgment, I deserve to be separated from God. I deserve judgment. I deserve God's I deserve to go to hell. I do not deserve to go to heaven. How do I know this? Because my sin, my sin prosecutes me. Then I have a devil. He, he, God created Lucifer. He 
became Satan. Lucifer means light bearer. He's now saying, I don't want to be your light bearer. So he rejected light bearer and he took on the name Satan, which means accuser of the brethren. And he's the prosecutor. And so, so what he's done before the throne of heaven is, if you were to, to look, he's actually got a crime scene around my, all my sin. And he stands before God and he says, Lord God, judge, this Jürgen does not deserve forgiveness. He does not deserve everlasting. He does not deserve heaven. May I bring as evidence before the courtroom, exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C, Exhibit, and once he gets through the, the letters, he starts with numbers and then it's symbols and then it, it just, I mean, it just keeps going. And the truth is, the truth is, everything he's saying is a hundred percent fact. It's a crime scene. But has anybody here ever watched CSI? Anybody ever watched CSI? So CSI, you know, there's brilliant people and they come in, they find the smoking gun and, and the guy thought he got away with murder. But then under her fingernail, they felt some skin. And so they put the skin and they find the DNA in the skin and they find that this person who was just the, the gardener but was there and he was the guy and the DNA and all of a sudden in court and then you know, he's convicted. He thought he got away with it, but he's captured and the story and you're like, woohoo, justice prevails. And it's an awesome story. Well, can I just tell you, this is what happened to your crime scene and this is what happened to my crime scene. I'm standing in the middle of the tape, my crime scene, and I know that I am guilty of every single one of these sins. I am guilty. I deserve eternal death. I deserve to be separate. I deserve hell. But Jesus Christ, my Savior, what he did was he actually stepped over my, the tape into my crime scene, and then he did this. He shed his blood. He shed his blood all over my crime scene so that when you bring the examination... When you, when you begin to examine who is guilty for all of these crimes, the DNA evidence, because there is no potent, con more potent concentrate of DNA than in your blood, and the blood screams that he is the one that is guilty. But I'm, bef I'm before God saying, no, no, he didn't. I did this. I know I did. The devil is right. I did all of this. But the father, when he examines the evidence, sees the DNA, and he says, there's only one person who is guilty, and it's it's this one who did not, who did not do any of these things, but he bore my wrath. He bore my judgment. That's how powerful the blood of Jesus Christ is. But I've got to tell you the good news. The triumph isn't just the fact that the blood saved her and saved her household. The Bible says that Rahab dwelt with Israel from that day. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, it's one of the most powerful passages of Scripture. Matthew chapter 1, you'll, it's easy to read over it because it's a genealogy. But in Matthew 1 verse 5, it says, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. What? Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. If you do a study on who Salmon was, Salmon was a prince in Judah. So God doesn't just come into Jericho where he's bringing judgment and a prostitute who does not deserve because she receives the word of God and faith comes because she believes. Remember, Jesus says, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe, he didn't say whosoever would behave, would have everlasting life. He said whosoever would believe would have everlasting life because believing comes first, behavior comes second. You can't behave your way into believing, but you believe your way into behaving. The word of God comes to her, but God doesn't just deliver her. God doesn't just save her. He reaches all the way back. She goes from a prostitute to someone who now marries the prince. The little girl that maybe had a dream that life had twisted and corrupted and, and brought down. And now she's living compromise, lying in a bed at the end of the night, hating and loathing herself. But this is how she makes a living and she feels her. And God doesn't just save her. God cleanses her. God renews her. God restores her. And he brings the dream back to pass. But it gets even crazier. Because the Bible says that Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. And if you look at Boaz, Boaz was the kinsman redeemer with Ruth. Who's Ruth? Ruth was the Moabitess. There was a woman called Naomi who, because of a, a, an economic downturn in Israel, decides she's going to go down and live in the land of Moab because she heard that there was, you know, seed and a better economy down there. Her husband dies and then her two sons die. And so she's got two daughters-in-law, and she's like, please, I can't provide for you. Turn back. One of them, Orpah, turns back. But Ruth says, you know, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And where you die, there will I be buried. And Ruth tries, Naomi tries everything to get rid of her, but she can't. So Ruth follows her all the way back to Israel. When they get back to Israel, she's like, daughter, go back home. Go back home to, to the Moabites. Even if I was to get married today and have a son, would you really wait for him to grow up? This is crazy. But while she's there, she goes out gleaning in the field because widows and people who were poor could, could go behind the reapers and pick up the scraps. So she goes to pick up the scraps, but she finds favor. She finds favor. In that place, she, she finds so much favor that that the man who owns the territory, his name is Boaz, says, who is this woman? And they said, oh, this young woman is is Ruth. Now, you need to understand this is in the time of judges. The time of judges is a time when each man did what was right in his own eyes. And you find that wickedness just prevailed. There was so much immorality and wickedness and cruelty and perversion that was gripping Israel. And here Boaz says, hey, drop some full grains of head for her. And then he brings her in. He says, why don't you have a drink and have something to eat? And here, take this home to Naomi. She takes it home. When Naomi hears that, that she's found such favor, she says, oh, my gosh, he's a distant relative. And he's not married. He could possibly be the redeemer. She thought, but hang on, how can I get him to fall in love with you if he's over 40 and he's not married yet? More than likely, he just likes the bachelor lifestyle. He's incredibly wealthy. So Naomi uses very, very crafty intentions. She says, Ruth, come here. I want you to go and wash your hair, perfume your body, put on your best dress, go back to the farm, when they finished 
the harvest for the day they'll be eating and drinking and celebrating. Once he's eaten and drunk a little bit, find out where he lies down to sleep. Then once you've found the place where he sleeps, when no one's looking, go and slip under his sheet and lie at his feet. When he wakes, he'll tell you what to do. Oh, I'm sure he will, Naomi. I don't know why you're looking at me like that. It's in the Bible. The Bible says that around midnight, Boaz wakes up startled and looks, and there's a beautiful woman at his feet. Most men, being somewhat inebriated or intoxicated, finding a beautiful woman at his feet at midnight with no one else around would take advantage of her. He doesn't. He says, who are you? She says, I'm Ruth, your servant. And he said, Ruth, I've heard of your righteousness. I've heard of your faithfulness. And I've heard of your dedication to my relative Naomi. He said, I'm not the first right to marry you. There's another one. Let me go and negotiate with him tomorrow. And if he won't marry you, I will. And he sends her out secretly back to Back to Naomi. Ruth falls on her knees before him and she says, how can you, an Israelite, show such kindness to me, a foreigner, a Moabite? How could Boaz show such kindness? Because Boaz grew up hearing the story of Rahab the harlot, his mama who was outside of the covenants of Israel, that when the judgment came, God showed favor, God showed kindness, God showed grace and mercy to somebody who was a foreigner. Mama used to be a prostitute. Mama used to be, but the Lord came and this man was chased in a time of wickedness. And so he marries, but watch this, it gets even crazier because the Bible says that Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begot David. David became the king of Israel. So God doesn't just save Rahab the harlot. He doesn't just deliver Rahab the harlot. He doesn't just restore the broken dreams of Rahab the harlot. But he takes Rahab the harlot and he positions her in scripture so that kings eventually come from her body. Because God doesn't just save you just and then say, try harder, do better. When God saves you, he saves you and he stays with you. The Bible says in Philippians 1 verse 6 that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. But watch this, it gets even crazier because thousands of years later, there's a man, a carpenter's son, walking through the streets and a Syrophoenician woman, a foreigner to the, the, the tribes of Israel, yells out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. She, she, dares, to, she dares to have the audacity to, to, to say that I should have some mercy. And Jesus says to her, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she knows who he is. He's the son of David. She knows the story of Rahab. She knows the story of Ruth. And that day she leaves with a miracle. God doesn't just 
just save Rahab. He doesn't just deliver Rahab. He doesn't just restore Rahab. He doesn't just bring kings from Rahab. But he places her in Scripture for all eternity that the Son of God, the Messiah, the Messiah, the one who would ultimately die for the sins of mankind, the promised one, the fulfillment of the scarlet cord would come from this broken woman. My God, if God can do that with Rahab, it's just a snapshot of what he can do with your life and in my life if we would just surrender to him.